It'll be nice when we don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder what color-coded tier we are in. I hope that day will be sooner than later. I do realize, though, it may not be until we are in glory. And at least then, it'll, it'll be the radiance of the glory of our Lord that we have as a color code for us every day. That'll be a very good thing. So I wanted um, to begin this morning by reminding you of something, perhaps, or even um, instructing you on something, perhaps, for the very first time, as to what the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith mentions concerning the church. The third paragraph of that chapter begins by noting the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Now that presupposes a couple things, doesn't it? Namely, that all churches are not of the same purity. Some congregations are are more pure or purer than others. And most certainly, this is not speaking of the righteous standing of the individual saints which make up the church, right? That, that much is clear, I hope, because in that sense, we are all equally pure or clean because it is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that defines that sort of a purity at that point. So in that sense, there would be no distinction. But the confession is making a distinction here. So what is meant then by pure? The answer comes without having to look at the context of the confession, the surrounding statements in it. The answer simply comes by noting that purity in this context hinges upon what they call mixture and error. What the confession is looking to teach then is that there are some churches which are more in line with Scripture. There are some churches that are more in line with God's Word than others. Some are purer than others. Some are more faithful to the Word of God than others. And so, when it comes to what is taught and what is practiced by the church, not every church is exactly equal. Some are, more, some are driven more by what the Word of God says, whereas others are influenced by the world's wisdom. And in that sense, we want to be a pure church, don't we, brothers and sisters? Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. I want, by God's grace, to be on the right side of that scale, we've been seeing an example of this purity scale as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, actually. There is a, a world philosophy that has captured the saints in Corinth, and it has led to division among the body, among many other problems as well. They are at a number of different levels doing things their way rather than the way that God has instructed them to. And the Apostle Paul, he warns of world philosophy or worldly philosophy of empty deceit, of human tradition and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes in the letters to the the saints in Colossia, in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, and also to the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 14 to 18. All of those things, worldly philosophy, empty empty deceit, human cunning, uh, human tradition and craftiness and deceitful schemes, they all lead to impurity in a church or even worse. Or think of the, the revelation given to John. In Revelation 2-3, to we read of specific local congregations and the specific areas of doctrinal and practical concern for each of the churches. All, and all seven of the congregations that are mentioned there, they serve as an example of ways in which local congregations during the last days, the time which we are now in, the time in between Jesus' first and second coming, how churches can fall into sin. 
And if you remember from the vision that John has, these churches have different things said to them. It's not the same thing said to every church. Some of them have only good things said to them. Some are a mix of encouragements and warnings, and then others, well, it's just pretty serious warnings offered to them. So again, different levels of what we might call purity. Uh, Purity based upon mixture and error, uh, based on what a church is teaching or what they are practicing. And some churches, of course, can be so contrary to Scripture that they can no longer be called properly a Christian church with any true sense of the word. But even among true Christian churches, they're not all equal. We all have different issues. We have room to grow and to pursue reform. And so this morning, what we as the elders of First Family Church are wanting to put forward to you in this sermon is an area in which we believe we can bring reform to. An area in which we could all be, become more pure as a congregation, more biblical as a congregation, more God-honoring, in other words. So the title for this sermon is Pursuing the Most God-Honoring Administration of the Lord's Table. And the result, which is this sermon, I assure you, did not come about on a whim. It came through much study and prayer and discussion. I kid you not, the elders have been discussing the application of this topic now for seven years, on and off. And we are at a place now where we believe that we can be more faithful to the Word of God in this area. And it's not to say that after today that there'll be never any, nor, any need to reform in this specific area anymore even. We might. Uh, we can't say for sure what will happen as all of us, the church as a whole, you guys included, as we all grow in Christ and become more mature in the Lord, whether there will need to be more reform or not. Certainly, I assume there will need to be future reforms in other areas if we're going to be a church that's committed to the Word of God. But the area that we feel convicted to now is concerning the Lord's Supper. And what we're dealing with this morning then, church, is is actually the question of how we worship. That's what we are really thinking about. There are many things that we should all be concerned with. I mean, just turn on the news, open social media, You'll find many things there vying for your concern. Uh, Important things. Think of your work, your family. There are countless things to be concerned with. But there is something that we, by God's grace, must never fail to be concerned with, and that is worship. Right worship. Worship as the gathered church must always be a matter that we are greatly concerned with. How we worship isn't something that we are simply free to make up as we go along. We don't have the right to simply do what we think is right to do. Worship is something that is regulated by God himself. Worship, corporate worship that is, is set by God for his people and it is God who established how he is to be worshipped. J.C. Ryle said, Let the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible be the rule of our faith and practice. So then when we think about the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper, It makes sense to me to consider the topic primarily from the place where God himself instituted it, where he gave the instruction for it in his word, in the Bible. The Bible is to be the rule of our faith and practice. So I've chosen to do so from Matthew's gospel. So if you have your Bible, you could turn to Matthew 26, please. That's where we'll be primarily this morning. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. So let's read the passage, and then we'll pray before we continue to study his word together after we read it. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 26 in chapter 26, says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of this vine until the day that I, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are God and you are all wise and all that you do is right. And so this morning we look to you for instruction. We depend upon you, Holy Spirit, to give us understanding and to do the work that you can only do, that you would increase our faith today, that you would help us to be aligned with your word, help us to be humble and meek and teachable, Lord. Help us to, to think of what is right. May I say what is only right, and may people see you in the text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, there is a, a beautiful simplicity about the Lord's Supper, isn't there, church? The details are sparse, and the instruction is simple and clear. If you were to look at the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Synoptic Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would see that they are all almost word for word the same at that point. And when the Apostle Paul offers correction to the saints in Corinth in chapter 11, the same formula is used to correct them there. And this is the way that the church, the people of God, have observed this ordinance for the last 2,000 years, this means of grace. And do you understand what a, what a means of grace is, friends? You should know that in a biblical church, a church that is faithful in both doctrine and practice, you should know that in a church like that, you are always being subjected to what the Reformed have called the means of grace. And because the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, it is exactly why it is important that we pursue the most God-honoring administration of it. So what exactly is the means of grace? Well, they are the ordinary ways by which God grows our faith. And by ordinary, we don't mean boring or like lacking supernatural power. I mean, just think of it, friends. Has your faith increased over the years? Would you say, by God's grace, that you are more sanctified now than you were before? Would you say that you are more mature in Christ than you were before? I hope so. Well, we want you to be. We, we aspire to be ourselves. Well, how did that happen? Is it because of you? No, it's, it's through the means of grace, through God acting through the means of grace. So, well, what then are these ordinary means of grace? The answer to question 95 in Keech's Catechism, the Baptist Catechism, explains it like this. This is on your outline if you have one. It says, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, and it's talking about the word being preached especially, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So how do we grow as Christians? It is through the Spirit interacting with the faith of the elect to grow them through these God-ordained funnels or systems, these ordinary means of grace, the ordinary delivery systems as they are by which God himself grows us. Primarily these four categories that Keech, Benjamin Keach points out in the Catechism. You know, when you come to church to worship, you're not just simply an observer, right? 
this isn't a, an, a venue where you come just to be entertained. When we come to church to worship, it is participatory. You're to be a participant in it. What happens when we gather in right faith and practice is the worship of God in which we are all participating, in which God is delivering to us grace through faith that we might grow and be all the more conformed to Christ through it. This is why it is so important that we pursue the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper. Our growth and our conformity to Christ is directly related to our faithfulness to worship according to how God commands us to. After all, why do you think there are so many immature and nominal Christians at shallow churches? It is directly related to their abuse of and their neglect of the means of grace. Think of the preaching of the word, the right preaching of the word. You have a participatory role in it. You need to listen well. The listener, which in this case would be you all, needs to be just as engaged as the one who is delivering the message as well. That's how you participate, and I know that that is not easy. There is a myriad of distractions that get in the way. Our flesh, the cares of the world. Sometimes we even have the distraction of our children with us. But guess what? They need the word preached just as much as we do. And so it is our duty as, as parents and as fellow church members to welcome the children in and to, and to teach them to listen. Jesus never turned away the children. Why? Because faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of God. When a, when a pastor is rightly handling the Word of God and faithfully preaching it, this is why it's important to listen well, it is as if God Himself is speaking to us. So we need to take care as to how we listen. Turn with me to Ephesians 2 that you might see this. Just a few chapters over. Galatians, Ephesians. If you get to Philippians, you've gone too far. Ephesians 2, verse 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, who's the, who's the he of verse 17? It's the, it's the him of verse 18. And through this Him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, it's very obvious who the He is then, right? It's Jesus. There is no name under heaven by which men may be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. But when did Jesus ever go to Ephesus, church? We, it's not recorded in any of the gospel accounts. As a matter of fact, He makes it pretty clear that He did not go to those outside of the house of Israel. Remember the Samaritan woman who begged for him to heal her, um, her child? And she told him, well, the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And he was impressed by her faith. Well, Jesus didn't go to these surrounding areas. He didn't go to Ephesus. And yet the Apostle Paul says that, that he came and preached to them. How then did Christ Jesus come and preach to them? How did God preach to them? It is through the faithful preaching of the word by a man. The Holy Spirit takes the words of the preacher and like arrows, he drives it into the hearts of those that are listening, some to convict, some to exhort, some to encourage, some to create faith for the very first time, whatever it is that God desires. So it is as if God himself is actually preaching when the word is correctly preached. So listening well is important. Preaching is a means of grace. 
And some distraction is worth it and necessary in the case of our children. And the Lord takes it into consideration and still grows us through this means, even with us taking the time to instruct our children, to instruct our little ones. It's simply part of life. Secondly, prayer is a means of grace. When the church comes together as a church and to offer up prayers to the Father as Jesus instructed us to in the Lord's Prayer, it is as if we are all together storming the mercy seat with boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. Prayer is not about changing God's mind or plans in the slightest. It is the secondary cause by which he accomplishes his will. And in doing so, he conforms us to his will. We all participate in it. Even if you're not the one praying, it's why you say amen at the end of a faithful and faith-filled prayer. Prayer is a means of grace. And then you have the two ordinances or the two sacraments. The Lord's Supper and baptism are ordinary means of grace. Baptists have historically called them ordinances rather than sacraments. Even uh, Reformed Baptists do this. And it's a conscious effort to separate ourselves from the Roman Catholic uh, Church's errors, since they identify seven sacraments, all of which are erroneous in their practice, even baptism and the supper. Nevertheless, baptism and the Lord's Supper are means of grace as well. They are signs that signify something. They are visible word signs that we participate in. In both, in both of them, God builds our faith. Baptism conveys our union with Christ. It reminds us that we have, before we were baptized, have had our sins washed by Christ. We participate by watching the word sign applied to others. And of course, when we have it done to ourselves at that one time, hopefully at the beginning of our relationship with the Lord. And the Lord's Supper is similar it's more than just a memorial. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. It's where we are being reminded of the covenant that we are in with God. And I don't want to say too much about the implications and applications of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace because we're going to deal with it at, at, in length as we preach through 1 Corinthians. Note a couple of things through this letter, though. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we break, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see participation. How? We'll, we'll deal with that more when we, when we get there. Uh, there's something there by which God acts in our lives. And then the next chapter, chapter 11, in verse 28, he says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. You see, there is something spiritual taking place that God works through this means of grace. If not, why then is improper observance judged and people are even physically harmed for doing so? So then as a church, we need to approach these means of grace with seriousness, don't we? There is much at stake in them. Do we desire to be a pure church? Will we stand for a mixture of worldly philosophy and error among us? By God's grace, may we worship him by the standard set forth in his word. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but baptism and the Lord's Supper basically bookend Christ's public ministry. At the start of it, he is baptized by John. He goes under the water. The Father is present, declaring from heaven that this is his beloved Son. Uh, the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove would descend in the act. It's here where we get our Trinitarian formula for baptism. Baptism is not circumcision 2.0. It's a new ordinance or sacrament instituted by Christ for the new covenant. 
and we see it practiced and recorded in Acts. The Lord's Supper, as we read just a moment ago in Matthew 26, came at the end of his public ministry. After he instituted the Lord's Supper, the events of Calvary went into motion. That's when he instituted this means of grace. And just like baptism, this is a new covenant ordinance. This was something brand new for the people of God. But we aren't given many details about it. Remember, there was what I said, a beautiful simplicity about it. There was only a few short verses, and we're told about two elements, a bread and a cup, and then what those two elements represent, the body of the Lord, which was broken for us, and his blood, which was poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. We're to eat the bread and then to drink the, drink the cup after giving thanks for them both. So there, though there is this beautiful simplicity in this means of grace, there's actually quite a bit that we must think of concerning our participation in it. Uh, if we want to be biblically responsible and clear-minded Christians, that is. If we're to give honor to the Lord in how we do it. There is much to consider for our administration of this ordinance. We could speak of the frequency of which we partake of the table. Some churches will take communion only once a year. And many Protestant churches, even Baptist churches, observe this ordinance weekly. It's part of the normal liturgy, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't know if many of you remember but we actually have reformed our practice here in the past. It used to be, I want to say maybe eight or nine years ago, that we would observe the Lord's Supper maybe four or five times a year. That, that was it. Of course, now we do it 12 times a year on the first Sunday of the month. We've made some reform here. Or, you know, how do you distribute the elements? Should we have people come forward to take them? Do we pass them out to you? Uh, before the pandemic, we did, we did both. We rotated them. Some churches just leave the elements on a table in the back and saying nothing about it except reminding people to take it as they leave. Surely, I think that is a, a wrong practice. When in the service do you have the Lord's Supper? At the end? At the beginning? During the evening service? Is it okay to do it at a camp? At a wedding? At home with your family? How do you fence the table? Is it open for everyone who shows up? Is it for believers only? Is it only for those who are members at the local congregation? Do we dip the bread in the cup before we take it? So you see, there's quite a bit of complexity when it comes to the administration of the Lord's Supper. And I have views on all of those things. You can ask me about them later if you like. But for this morning, we're considering the elements that we use. What are we using as a church to represent the, the body of our Lord that was broken and the blood of our Lord that was poured out in this means of grace? It matters, doesn't it? What we use, that is. Would it be reverent? and God-honoring to use goldfish crackers and grape soda? It might taste good. Probably not together, now that I think of it. <laughs> but that's, that's not the point of it, right? The elements represent something, and we want to be faithful to what it is they represent, or we should want to, at least. And I know that we all want to be faithful to the word of the Lord when it comes to worship. We want God to regulate how it is that he is to be worshipped. We want his word to be the rule of our faith and practice when it comes to worship. You know why? Because God is God and we are not. He is just and righteous and all of his ways are perfect. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. All that he does is right. And he is the consumer of worship, not us. And it is his right and privilege, privilege to tell us how we are to do it. So then, what should we use? It's important to use what is best. We want to make the decision that is the most wise. 
and be as responsible and as biblical as possible in facilitating a proper administration here at First Family Church. So before we get into this a little bit more, let me say something in the spirit of humility and meekness. Uh, Healthy churches are going to, to often differ on the issue of elements for theological and practical reasons. And even though I know they are, they are important, I wouldn't break fellowship or refuse sharing in the Lord's Supper with those who practice different than I'm going to teach here in a few moments. But is one practice better than the others? Is one practice more pure than others? Will one practice help us in our sanctification more? I think so. Yes, uh, it will. So how do we determine what that is? Well, we need to look at the context. The context of the, the institution of this ordinance will reveal to us what was used when Jesus himself instituted the supper. And we know from the previous verses that Jesus instituted this on a specific day. So if you're back in Matthew 26, if you look back a few verses to verse 17, this gives us the time period of when this was instituted. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So there are two contextual clues here for us. It's the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, and that's the night that they were to eat the Passover meal. This takes us back to Exodus 12, when the Passover was instituted. Heeding the words of God through Moses, Israelite families put lamb's blood on the doorposts of their homes. God in his wrath against the sin of the Egyptians, was going to pass through the land. And if the firstborn was covered by the sacrificial blood in this way, judgment would not fall on him when the tenth plague began. Why? Because, of course, judgment was on the lamb instead, the blood that was already shed. Its blood covered him. And Old Covenant Israel would commemorate this event through the Feast of Unleavened Bread each year. They had to remove for this feast, this festival, all the leaving from their home over the next seven days. The Passover meal was day one of the festival. And through the Passover meal, the Israelites would remember when death passed over them because they were under the blood. The lack of leaving in the house for seven days caused them to remember the complete redemption from sin that the Passover pointed to. It pointed to something future. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, these were both visual types that had their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on just any week of the year. His death occurred during Passover because Passover was a type that he fulfilled. Jesus is the slain lamb that we needed. He is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And the Lamb who would truly deal with sin and offer complete redemption from the penalty of the sin that we deserve. And condemnation will not meet any who are covered by His blood, who are under His blood, for He is the true and greater Passover sacrifice. Friends, that is the context that Jesus instituted the supper in. It was on the night of the Passover meal. They're thinking of these things. So let's consider the elements. It's no fickle decision to use unleavened bread in representing the body. As we've seen already, Jesus instituted this ordinance while observing the Passover meal with his disciples. The use of, of unleavened bread over seven days reminded them of the complete redemption from sin that they would have through the coming Messiah. Again, the Passover meal was a type of deliverance that God would provide in Christ through the new covenant. And it was a testimony to God's provision and salvation for his people in the old covenant. Now, the Lord's Supper isn't Passover 2.0, 
but it shares similar principles. But it is a, actually a far greater sign and a revelation of these spiritual promises as the body and blood of God the Son is in view in comparison to the body and blood of a, of a spotless lamb, which, which albeit was a, a type of Christ, Christ being the antitype of that lamb. And we know that the Passover celebration had specific instruction to it. So this is in Exodus 12. It says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day, which again is the day of the Passover meal, until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. It's an important matter. Therefore, it's abundantly clear as to what kind of bread was used when Jesus instituted the ordinance. It seems impossible to even dispute the reality that unleavened bread would have been used in the upper room discourse when the ordinance was first established. Further, you know, even in the, in the New Testament, bread with leaven is sometimes, and, and not always, but sometimes referenced to in light of sin. The Apostle Paul even spoke of this in 1 Corinthians, the very letter that he's correcting these malpractices of the Lord's Supper in. 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says... Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So that said, faithful believers haven't always used unleavened bread. And many churches today use a leavened bread or a common loaf for this ordinance. Are they wrong for doing so? Or are they within a range of what is biblically acceptable? Well, it is said that the early church sometimes used the common bread because it was what was available to the Gentile churches and because the New Testament instruction doesn't specify either way. The Gospel accounts and 1 Corinthians simply mention bread. It doesn't specifically say unleavened bread in the passage that we read this morning. Even though the context, I think, and I can argue clearly that is, the context is clearly unleavened bread. Now, I know the Reformers started using leavened bread in part because of Rome and their abuses of teaching on the bread. This was justified by them because of the specific verses that speak of the Lord's Supper merely mentioned the breaking of bread, not the breaking of unleavened bread. And they wanted to say that, you know, we can still practice this ordinance faithfully even apart from your Roman Catholic errors about it. So listen to a couple of Reformed commentaries on this matter. Charles Hodge, he says... But as no part of the significancy of the rite depends on the kind of bread used, as there is no precept, that means law, on the subject, and as the apostles subsequently in the celebration of the ordinance used ordinary bread, it is evidently a matter of indifference as to what kind of bread is used. So Hodge believes that even the apostles might have just used a normal bread. Uh, Wilhelmus Albrackel says, One is to be neither superstitious nor concerned regarding the kind of bread and wine. The bread and wine which Christ used were such as were available and in common use. It is credible that in light of Passover, Christ used unleavened bread, but that was incidental. For the leavened bread was neither permitted to be used, nor was it available in Jerusalem at that time. It is therefore not necessary to follow suit in this respect. It must be bread which one commonly uses for nourishment, thus to typify the spiritual nourishment of the soul. And then the, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we scarcely know what kind of bread was used on that occasion. It was probably the thin Passover cake of the Jews, but there is nothing said in Scripture about the use of leavened or unleavened bread, and therefore it matters not which we use. Where there is no ordinance, there is no obligation, and we are therefore left free to use the bread, which is our custom to eat. And I love the Reformed commenta commentaries. 
And what they're saying is that the specific kind of bread is a matter of indifference for many Protestants. Though there is great agreement that it shouldn't be just something about like using the best tasting option or irreverent options. So good brothers and healthy churches may use a common loaf and be within orthodoxy, it would seem. But I do think that this stance fails to take into consideration the cultures of the, the, cultures of the Jews in Jesus' day, in which they most certainly would have been using unleavened bread, Allah Exodus 12. Spurgeon and Albrackle even note that. Nevertheless, we wouldn't say that churches who decide to use a leavened bread or a leavened loaf for the sake of ease are in sin for doing so. Therefore, if we want to pursue an observance ourselves here at First Family Church, that is most like and the best uh, the option that we can use, the, the, the sort of a option that the apostles partook of and therefore the best or most God-honoring administration unleavened bread, actually, rather than a leavened loaf, would be the best choice and the obvious choice, I would think. Because that's what Jesus instituted in the supper. Even though others might choose to use a different kind, we we're thinking about the most God-honoring, the best option. For the theological reasoning of how the lack of leaven shows us the sinlessness in Christ's body, and also for the simple fact that it is what Jesus used himself. And it should be noted as well that when, when we were making our own bread back before everything happened in March, uh, it was one piece. It was one piece that was cut up into small pieces. So, so one loaf that was broken, in other words, staying in step with how Jesus administered the bread in the upper room. So nothing to change for us there, church. I think that we continue to use unleavened bread in our administration of the Lord's Supper, which then obviously means we're going to now consider the element that the elders are desiring to change. There are only two elements in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And you all are intelligent, I know. You probably figured it out 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, that we're speaking of changing from grape juice to wine. Uh, what else could it be after all? And I want to mention up front that myself and the rest of the elders are fully aware of the difficulty that this topic potentially brings with it. I'm fully aware that there are, are some in the congregation that have prayerfully made the decision to never drink alcohol recreationally. We respect that decision and aren't asking you to make a change in that regard. Pastor Nick and Missy have made that decision some time ago. Ross and Carol made that decision to not do so when they adopted James and Desi so as to be a good example to them because of where their, their background was. And so we're wanting to approach this topic humbly and carefully. And, and again, remember the goal. We want, as a congregation, to pursue the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper. So then, let's consider the representation of the blood. It's interesting to me that our brothers at the time of the Reformation who allowed for a use of leavened bread or a common loaf never had anything to say about wine versus grape juice. It simply wasn't an issue for them. There was debate over white wine versus red wine, with red wine always being preferred because of how it more readily captures the imagery of blood. Uh, and grape juice does that as well, by the way. But the allowance of white wine when red was not available did transpire. And nothing that I have been able to find in history suggests that grape juice was used in the supper until the temperance movement in America. This could be, and most certainly it is, because refrigeration was not readily available until the late 19th century. And so it was much easier to keep wine than grape juice. You know, grape juice would turn into wine after just a short period of time. Therefore, making it a non-issue for the church prior to the middle of the 19th century. 
And plus, you know, grape juice wasn't really a widely spread product until 1869 when a Wesleyan man, a Wesleyan is a denomination, a Wesleyan man by the name of Thomas Welch, of Welch's grape juice, figured out how to pasteurize grape juice, making a non-alcoholic wine easily accessible to those who went through the trouble of making it themselves. Nevertheless, what we want to think of is what does Scripture say when it comes to the cup and this fruit of the vine? And so you might be surprised to learn this morning that what the Scripture says about alcohol isn't always bad. In his book, What Would Jesus Drink?, Brad Whittington breaks down the biblical references of alcohol into three different types. Okay, three different types of references when the Bible speaks of alcohol. One, or excuse me, there's 247 mentions total, and 40 of them are negative, warnings about drunkenness, potential dangers, and things like that. 145 are positive, signs of God's blessing, use in worship, things like that, and 62 are neutral, people being falsely accused of being drunk, like our Lord was, vows of abstinence, and things like that. But what about our passage for consideration this morning? Our first consideration is, what does the Bible say, right? We want the, our rule of faith and practice to be the Word and the Word alone. What was in the cup in the upper room discourse? Grape juice or wine? You may have noticed that we have the same problem here as we did with the bread. We aren't told what is in the cup. All we know is that Jesus mentions he won't drink of the fruit of the vine until he is glorified and we with him. And we're not helped by Exodus 12 with this element. We read nothing about what to drink in the Passover meal at that point. So our best option is to do some exegetical work with what we do have. What then is usually referred to in Scripture when the word cup is mentioned or when the the term fruit of the vine is mentioned? Because when we hear those things, we think grape juice is acceptable. But is that what a first century Jew would think? Let's consider the cup first. The word cup in Matthew 26 is the Greek word poterion. And it is so closely connected to wine that in the, the, the best lexicon, I would say, the BDAG, it contains a parenthetical remark about this word which says that it is used in Greek literature mostly for drinking wine. The most frequent use of the word cup, poterion, is for wine. Then if we're to look up this word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the culture that the apostles and Jesus were coming out of, you would find that word, that the word cup is linked throughout the Old Testament to wine. So three examples. Uh, Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51.17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Okay, staggering, it's an alcoholic cup. Jeremiah 51.7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. And that's just a small sample. There are many other examples to choose from where poterion is used in regard of an alcoholic wine. From the evidence of Scripture, we can conclude that the word cup in the institution of the Lord's Messiah is functioning as a figure of speech, a, metano- a metanoimi, a metanomai. Are you familiar with what a metanoma? Excuse me, this word is a hard word. I struggle on it. A metanomi. What is a metanomi? It is a figure of speech in which a word is used to represent a larger concept. For example, when someone says, oh, he ate his entire plate, we don't mean that he actually ate the plate, right? It means he ate everything on it. 
Or when someone says that, um, you know, the journalist writes, the, the White House said, they don't mean that the building spoke itself. They mean that someone from the building, someone representative of the White House spoke. So both the plate and the White House are metanomies. Likewise, when Jesus speaks of a cup, he's not referring to the cup itself, but he's referring to what is actually in it, the contents of the cup. And what would have been in the contents of the cup within the context of first century Jewish Passover meal? It's wine. Not only, we, don't, we know that not only from the fact that the Greek word for wine is used in historical documents describing first century Jewish Passovers, for example, the ancient book of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish book of Jubilees, but also because neither refrigeration nor pasteurization had been invented yet. So it would be nearly impossible to prevent grape juice from turning into wine in the first place. And there's other New Testament evidence as well, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, what about the phrase, the fruit of the vine? The phrase, the fruit of the vine, in Greek contains two nouns, genema and ampelos. Genema for fruit, ampelos for vine, and both are worthy of further consideration. Interestingly, the typical word for, for fruit is the word karpos, and that's the word, that word is not used here. Instead, the Spirit uses the word genema, which literally, which literally means yield or, or produce. This word is often associated not just with any product or yield of fruit in general, but wine in particular. According to the most widely, again, I think the best uh, lexicon, the Greek lexicon, BDAG, the word is often used specifically of wine as the product of the vine. And so the other word in the phrase, empelos, that also is not a reference to any vine in general, but to a grapevine in particular. For instance, consider James 3.12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine, empelos, produce figs? In light of these considerations, we shouldn't imagine that the phrase fruit of the vine could refer to any and every fruit of any kind, of every kind of vine. Instead, it refers to a particular vine in the context of first century Israel that could have only have actually meant wine. When Jesus speaks of the fruit of, fruit of the vine, he references this fruit of the vine. Again, it's not just any fruit of any vine. He's referencing, instead, Jesus is explicitly referencing the particular contents of a particular cup. Whatever was in his cup is what he instituted. So let's do the same thing with the cup that we did, or with, let's do the same thing that we did with the cup, now with the fruit of the vine. What is the Old Covenant context for this phrase? Well, Judges 9, 12 through 13. And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Isaiah 5, 2. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Isaiah 24, 7 through 9, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled, no more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. So in all the examples, and again, there is many others that we could look at, this word, ampelos, vine, it's always associated in genoma with wine, with grapes. So if you're a first century resident familiar with the Old Testament and other Jewish literature, the phrase, the fruit of the vine, clearly does not refer to any fruit of any vine, but rather the particular product of the grapevine, which is wine. So what is in Jesus' cup when he institutes this ordinance? His cup is not full of juice, but rather the fermented yield of a grapevine. So even though there is no explicit mention of wine, it is certainly implied in the meaning of the text. 
In other words, the question that we need to ask ourselves as we want to pursue the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper is what do we today, is not, is not what do we today consider to be a cup or fruit of the vine. In English, those words can refer to a cup of grape juice, kiwi juice, watermelon juice, pickle juice, pumpkin juice, I guess anything that grows on a vine. But we are not concerned with what individual English words can mean in our culture, but rather what the biblical words mean within the biblical context. The question is then, what did this phrase mean to Christians 2,000 years ago, familiar with the Greek language and Jewish customs and traditions? We're wanting to determine what is the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper when it comes to the fruit of the vine and the cup. And what we find is that alcoholic wine had to have been used. So to close, and I, I don't mean to say here that I'm almost done now, okay? This, this is important. This is important. We're talking about the way that we worship, so bear with me, please. But I, I want to put before us some considerations and objections that are common in this discussion. As long as I have known, the tradition at First Family Church has been to use grape juice for communion. The question that should be in our minds is why? We should ask this question about every element of worship that, that we have, of course. And what follows are, are a few possible considerations as it is FFC or any congregation that is, any church may use grape juice rather than wine, and then objections to such stances. Kind of like what the Apostle Paul does in Romans 9, if you will, where he puts forth teaching, then he, he, he hears in his mind the objections that man will make, and then he answers that objection before they even have a chance to ask it. That sort of a thing. There could be other considerations, which I'm not aware of, and if so, I'm open to discussing them as well, but let's consider these ones that I thought of. So A, Many people use alcohol to sin, and therefore, we should not use wine in the supper. Well, this is true. Many people do use alcohol to sin, but I don't think that is a reason to not use wine in this ordinance. Biblically, it is clear that only when alcohol is abused and a person becomes drunk, it is then that a person is in sin and is guilty for committing evil. But alcohol itself is not evil, and it should properly be understood as a good gift from a good and loving God, which sadly gets abused in a fallen world. I mean, Jesus himself was called a drunkard for drinking wine, Matthew eleven nineteen, 19. And we know he never sinned, right? That was a false accusation against him. He also turned six large jugs of water into wine on the latter days of a wedding celebration. So a party-like atmosphere in which overconsumption would be probable in a large group of people, right? This happens in John chapter 2. So for us, as Christians, to so distance ourselves from wine and the Lord's Supper because we think that it's going to cause people to sin is to actually say that we think we know better than Jesus himself. That we are more caring than Jesus because Jesus didn't do those things. Both of those things we know are false. We're not more caring than Jesus. We don't know better than Jesus. Jesus drank wine and ate with people who were considered sinners and tax collectors, people then who would abuse wine. And yet we read that wisdom is justified by her deeds in the specific context, Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. In like manner, the gospel is often abused, but we don't abstain from the gospel in order to prevent people from abusing that, do we? Uh, people preach false, false gospels and they confuse law and gospel frequently, and yet we still preach the gospel. 
we hold it with respect, and we take care to make sure that we are obedient to God in our thoughts and actions with it. And likewise, we should do the same with alcohol. And nobody would be getting drunk off the little communion cup anyways. B, using wine in the supper will tempt people to fall into sin. The reality is there's simply no good evidence for this unless we depend upon the wisdom of the world as a standard for authority. This is a pragmatic approach to the table that could possibly allow for a person to partake of it who is not spiritually fit to do so in the first place. The wisdom given to us from God would make this argument meaningless. Uh, Being that communion is a God-ordained ordinance and good for his church, specifically born-again, baptized people, why then would a small amount of wine lead people into sin? And I speak as a person before my conversion who had a problem with alcohol, who has a a family history with alcoholism in it, Uh, a, a tendency to abuse alcohol and wine and whatever it is else that God gives along with that, in that substance. Well, aren't people, when they are in Christ, rightly considered new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17? They are. Could a person who has a problem with alcohol become a Christian and then no longer be defined by such a vice? I know that AA teaches that people that once you're an addict, you always are. But is that what God thinks? It's absolutely not. That's worldly wisdom. God sets you free. 1 Corinthians 6, 10 through 11. Nor thieves, and this is the Apostle Paul telling them about the type of people that they once were. He says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So verse 11 makes the case crystal clear. We're not defined by what we used to be because we've been washed by the blood of Christ, the very thing the cup represents. If a person falls into sin by participating in the Lord's Supper with a sip of wine and they just have to immediately get out of here and then go directly and start drinking until they black out, then I propose that they were not fit to partake of the ordinance in the first place. Hence, we as elders need to take care about who we baptize and who we administer into membership. We're not the Holy Spirit work in the lives of a person who has in the past had an alcohol problem to sanctify them through this? And if the individual is scared to partake of communion because wine is used and they perceive that they will fall into sin, then I again propose that maybe they are not fit to partake of it at that time, at least for that moment. It's a teachable moment for them, that they may understand about the freeing power that God gives to us in Christ. Perhaps, though, the leadership, the elders, hope to curb any temptation and choose to use grape juice over wine, which is at the heart of this consideration for the vast majority of churches. Again, such a stance makes us seem like we think we are wiser than God, though we definitely don't think that when we apply it. Certainly, there were drunks in Jesus' day and before that, but that did not prevent them from using wine at the Jewish feasts. It's interesting to note that the church was confronted with people getting drunk and abusing alcohol in the context of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And even then, they're not instructed to use something which removes the temptation. Rather, the Apostle Paul warns the congregation to simply not partake in an unworthy manner. So the emphasis is put onto the individual, not on the individual participation, not on the element of it itself. Because the element means something. C. Using wine prevents children from participating. Well, this 
might actually may be good in the sense that it really forces us to consider who this ordinance is for. And remember, this is an ordinance for believers, for those who have been born from above, and believers are to hold it in reverence. And it is such a small amount that nobody, even a child, is in danger of falling into the sin of drunkenness from a little tiny cup, any more than, uh, unless they drink more than they should. If a child, though, has such faith that he proclaims or she proclaims Christ as Lord, and then they move forward in baptism, then we can say with certainty that that person, as they are in Christ and as they are part of the church through faith and baptism, should take communion. They're able. God ordained it. It's not a sin for them to, to, take a, to partake of communion, even though the cup is wine. And to my knowledge, under the Freedom of Religion Act, it is perfectly legal for a child to partake in sacramental wine as well. D, wine in the Bible was not alcoholic or much less potent than ours. Uh, there's simply no merit for this. There's no point in trying to pluck hairs and try to determine the alcoholic content of wine. Noah planted a vineyard after the flood, and he made wine potent enough to make him drunk. Ephesians 5.18 warns, Do not be drunk with wine where there is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Clearly implying that wine had the ability to make one drunk, to take over one's senses. Again, Jesus was called a drunkard, and the Corinthian observance of the table had people getting drunk. Whatever the alcoholic content was, it was enough to be abused. So this argument that says wine in the Bible is not alcoholic, and so we could just use grape juice now, holds no water. And that brings me to the, to the next point. E, the wine in Jesus' day was watered down. Well, similar to objection D, this objection really addresses an emotional response rather than a rational one. To prove my point, if this is our argument as a reason as to not have alcohol in the communion cup, would we be willing to take real wine and add water to it and water it down and then use that as communion? If so, then we're at least being consistent. But we don't want a watered-down representation of the blood of our Savior, do we? His blood has the power to save. It is potent. The gospel is potent and offensive likewise, and so we shouldn't water down the gospel any more than we should water down the wine in our communion cups. Our conscience must be trained by Scripture. Even more, I'm not aware of any text that says that the wine was watered down. The only thing that comes close to is, is wine mingled with gall that was given as a sedative to those on the cross. And once again, it fails the test of being, able, of being unable to explain why Jesus would be called a drunkard or why the Corinthian church had a problem. Perhaps Paul should have told them to use a greater water-to-wine ratio in their Lord's Supper feasts if that was the case. And then lastly... F, I don't care what the Bible says. I just don't think wine is right to use. I include this consideration just to illustrate the heart of the matter and the real reason people look for all sorts of excuses to do anything other than what the Bible clearly instructs us to do. Our emotions, church, should always follow a mind that is renewed by the scriptures, Romans 12, 1 through 2. The church and the Christian alike would be much better off if they would dedicate themselves to what the Bible reveals rather than living according to what we feel like we should do or not do. May we return to the scriptures alone as our teacher and guide of conscience. And that said, our desire is to do what is best in this regard, to do what is most wise, what is most God-honoring. I'm aware of the possibility that there could be a good biblical reason to not use wine, which I've not addressed. I'm a person. Perhaps I've missed something. 
perhaps using grape juice as a matter of indifference, as it was with the leavened bread and unleavened bread. That doesn't seem to be the case, though, not after our work in the text this morning. But if there is something that we haven't thought of, then we invite you, the membership, to prayerfully consider it and bring it to, to the elders. We're open to have discussions. We're not some high and untouchable people. We want to discuss theology with you. We want to practice the faith according to what the, the Word says, and we want you to be part of that. So we do believe that the proper and most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper would be unleavened bread and wine. But, but men may choose to use leavened bread and grape juice and still claim a proper administration and not be outside of orthodoxy. We've noted that Jesus himself and the biblical authors under inspiration in the New Covenant did not make clear distinction on the elements in those descriptive periods of time. But as I say in the title of this sermon, we want as a church to pursue the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, because of everything that's already been mentioned, I conclude that unleavened bread and wine are the elements, the best elements, that we should be putting forth as a congregation. Wine and unleavened bread best capture what God intends to teach us and reminds us of in this ordinance. So I'll close with a quote from Pastor R.C. Sprawl, who's considering a quote from John Calvin on this topic. He says, There is an ongoing controversy in that many Protestant churches don't use wine in the celebration of the sacrament. In fact, I think the majority of churches don't use wine. Most use a form of grape juice. One of the major reasons for that is the problem of alcoholism, and church leaders want to protect their people from unnecessary temptation. In other cases, church, excuse me, churches don't believe Jesus used real wine. We addressed all those. Then he says, I agree with Calvin. Real wine communicates to our taste buds both elements, pain and joy, sorrow and gladness, and somehow, in my opinion, grape juice just doesn't do it. I think we lose something there because in the worship of Israel, God associated certain truths with certain tastes. And he's right. You know, the objections don't hold up. God instituted what he did. And may we pursue as a church the most God-honoring administration of the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. And we desire it to be the rule of our faith and practice. Lord, we don't want to be influenced by worldly wisdom, by human tradition, or by human cunning in deceitful schemes. Protect us from that, Lord. We want to operate by faith, in faith, with what your word has put forth. So grant us the eyes of faith that we might worship you the way that you desire to be worshipped, the way that you are worthy to be worshipped. You alone, Lord, we confess, have the knowledge to know how it is that you are to be worshipped. So we look to you and we ask that you would guide us, not just here in this topic that we've covered this morning, but in every area of our worship, Lord. May we be conformed to your word in it and may we honor you and glorify you for you are worthy of glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.